Good morning, friends. We have been going through the carols of Christmas this, um, this year. We always have a bit of a challenge to know how do we do Christmas messages without being so overly repetitive every single year. Well, um, the, it is a challenge, but we also are a church that loves um, to ha- take a few weeks off uh, from our normal series at Advent and focus on the Incarnation. So I'm, I'm glad we do that too. Today, I have the privilege of speaking on this hymn in our hymnals. I know many of you may have been looking up front um, uh, at the screen, but 201 in the Trinity hymnal, which is called O Little Town of Bethlehem. Can you guess what the main idea of the song is? It's obvious, right? It's about Bethlehem and how it was a prophesied place for the birth of a king. And not just any king, but the king of kings. Um, I just want to say a quick word, um, two quick words. One, it is an honor and a privilege, along with Pastor Jeff, to be one of your pastors. I don't know if you get to hear that, but you need to know that. It is an honor for us to be one of your pastors and to be a church that loves God's Word and loves songs that celebrate the Lord Jesus. And I want you to know, um, even as we hear magnificent pieces like the one we just heard or just sing together and the room sounds loud because everyone's singing, there's a joy that fills my heart in knowing that no one who comes to our church will ever miss the gospel. Amen? It might be through a song, a reading, a confession of faith, a great hymn, or the message itself, but you will not walk away without knowing what is most important at Trinity Presbyterian Church, and that is salvation through Jesus Christ. By the way, that is the, the thing that I want you to hear and walk away with this morning and think about as you pray for unbelievers in your family, as you think about uh, loved ones, friends, neighbors, people who you are worried about, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. And you need to know what the gospel means. And that that is the most important thing you'll ever think about. More than stocks and bonds and, and, and family inheritances or anything else. The gospel and the simplicity of the truth of the gospel is the most important thing that you will ever think about or ever hear. So I don't want you to walk away today in the season of Advent without hearing that again. And I hopefully you hopefully will hear it through the lyrics of this marvelous hymn written by a man named Philip Brooks during or actually just after the end of the Civil War. That's the timing. I'll come back to Philip in a, Philip's Brooks in a minute. But I want to give you um, a few points so that you can kind of track along as best as you can. One is, uh, so I'm going to be in the passage in Micah, but also in the lyrics of this song. But the, the points that I have for you is time for the true king. Two, the 
instruments that are in the hands of the king. And thirdly, the places of the king. And that's where I'm going to come to the lyrics of the hymn and the other moments I think I'd like to spend some time in Micah as well. But let me ask a question and uh, as a starting point and then ask if we can pray together. Have you ever, um, have you had an unexpected but pleasant surprise this past year? How about ever? All right, well, let's think about that and then pray. Father, I ask that you would bless us this morning as we sit around your holy word, which is alive to us, and we warm around the fires of it, Lord, so that we may be enlivened again. And I pray that you would speak to us as your Holy Spirit sheds light on it and that you would, above everything else, give us eyes to see your Son who is the center and crux of everything. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple years ago, I had a chance to go to South Dakota. Do you know where that is? Just joking. I know, you're a smart group. South Dakota. So I had the chance to go to South Dakota. Um, the reason is I was meeting with a few, uh, few friends. Um, a few friends and a lot of strangers. They happen to be men who um, love the Lord but come, come from different different backgrounds. In other words, they're not, they weren't all pastors. Most of them were businessmen. And so we gather about once a year, and I only started this about three years ago, just to kind of get away and to have a chance to talk about life, family, things that we're doing, the difficulties of being a Christian in the midst of doing business and church and all this kind of stuff. And um, it was supposed to be a great week, but unfortunately, uh, meaning time of year is supposed to be a great week, but unfortunately they had a huge snowfall just as we were coming in. And so we're in the Black Hills of South Dakota, very, very beautiful part of the country. And um, I barely got to the cabin and there was like 20 of us men there. And so basically we couldn't do a lot of the hiking and things that we wanted to do. So the goal was to rest to read, to pray, to talk, to eat together. We made meals together as this group of guys. And all week, we just kind of hung out and, and, and kind of talked about the Lord and talked about, uh, you know, the, the challenges of life. Well, there is one man who, um, who I noticed because he would always be cooking. Um, I saw him shoveling snow, and I wondered, why is he shoveling snow outside on the patio? Well, he wanted to get to the grill. And so then I realized that he has a mission on his mind. So he wanted to grill for the rest of the guys. And then uh, after one of the, the nights, early in the morning, I saw him going through and getting all the scraps, all the leftovers from the previous night. And he was standing over the skillet and, and making this incredible thing. I have no idea what it was, but it tasted delicious. It was leftovers from the previous night. And he, he said, here, he handed it to me. I was just enamored, you know, because I'm not a great cook. So I'm like watching at this guy, putting all the all this stuff together, ate it. It tasted delicious. His name, I'll say, is Tom G. Okay, Tom G, for, for just for reference point. All week, this guy did this. Just hung out with us, talked, cooked food. 
And um, last night, the very last night, we're having dinner and there's all these drinks, you know, like various kinds of drinks. And Tom starts talking about them and, and kind of introducing uh, us to them and we're having a wonderful dinner together. And somewhere in the middle of that story, he talks about his grandfather, Ernest Gallo. And I'm thinking, what? Wait, who? He said, yeah, when my grandparents were living in California, they were just, um, you know, normal people who worked hard and, and, and we loved to eat together as a family every Sunday and gather together. And so I quickly realized that I was in the presence all week of this ordinary guy cooking breakfast who was Ernest Gallo's grandson, Tom. And so um, I took a few uh, moments to step back and kind of take it all in. Um, And then uh, I started thinking about how unassuming he was and how much he cared about everyone and just served us and uh, made a huge, huge um, impression on me. Remember that line from the hymn that we talked about last week? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. The Lord Jesus came to us in a very, very unassuming way, but the scripture tells us that he came to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, this hymn, this little hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is all about a very, very small, insignificant little nowhere town on the hills of Judea, five to seven miles southwest of Jerusalem, which nobody really goes to or knows about. Probably had about, even now, only about 40,000 people. But it was prophesied to be a place with great purpose, to be the birthplace of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I want to tell you that Micah was a 8th century before Christ prophet. Some say he may have been a shepherd. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, and he's prophesying. And so let me come to this first point about the time for the true king. Micah is prophesying. Well, let me just read the first couple of verses again. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What Micah is prophesying is about a time where there will be a true king, the greatest king, to deliver God's people. So what, what's happening around this time period? Well, Micah is talking about God's people who are desperate, who are vulnerable, who are under attack of Assyria. The northern kingdom had ten tribes, and they were sieged. They're scattered now. And... Micah is saying they're under danger of attack, helpless 
But there's going to be a time where they're going to get a true king. That first line in Micah 5.1 is kind of awkward, isn't it? But I want you to look at these words and I'm going to give you kind of a simple translation. If you look at verse 1 again, it says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. Right? What does that even mean? I think in simple terms, this is what it means. It says, Now be gathered together, you who have done the gathering. You who were collectors, now be collected. You're about to get what you've been giving out or what you've been dishing out yourself. You've been gatherers of sin and now you're about to be gathered up. It's saying you're going to get attacked. You're going to get sieged. And it's really a warning. You're about to be rounded up yourselves. And the people are in such dire need. Your enemies shall siege you and attack and abuse you, uh, abuse the people of God. They will perpetually be under attack, whether it's by Assyria or others. And take heart though, because a great and marvelous thing is going to happen because the true king, the king of all kings, is going to come and deliver you so that you will never again be displaced or under attack. And notice it also says, and from of old, from the ancient of days, this king. Do you know what that's referring to? I actually don't think it's talking about the pre-incarnate Christ being from all eternity. I used to think that, but I think it's actually talking about Israel's glory days. Of their time when they had the greatest king, who is who? David, the greatest king of Israel. The ancient days of God's people. The glory days of Israel when David was the king from the ancient days, from of old. And where does it come from? Well, we're going to come to that in a moment. The second thing that I did want to mention was the instruments of the king. I'm going a little, a little quickly because of uh, just not, not having time to unfold every detail here. But there's two things that we find in verses 3 and 4 and 5 and 6. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of God. Now keep that in mind. When the rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You know what's in his hand? A staff. The staff of a shepherd. What is the staff of a shepherd for? Well, without going into a lot of details, it's to protect from danger. But it's also to pull back some and gather back in. He's talking about a shepherd who's going to unify God's people again. Do you know that the ten tribes never came back? They're scattered into the nations. They never become ethnic Israel as a whole again. So what is he talking about? This shepherd will unify all of God's people, the true Israel, which includes us, from every part of the world to be His people, to be unified into one flock with one shepherd. And then notice how it goes forth. Uh, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. 
When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. So 15 leaders. I don't know what that's actually referring to exactly. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrians when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So on one hand, he has a shepherd's staff. and the other hand, he has a sword. What's a sword for? It's to defeat the foes and defeat the enemies of God's people. This king will have a shepherd's staff to protect and unify, and a sword to hold not towards ourselves, but to attack the enemies of God's people, whether it be Assyria or anyone else. And ultimately, friends, a sword to destroy sin and death and the devil himself. These are the instruments that are in the hands of this king. Well, let me go to the places of the king. And this is what the song is really about. And so I'm going to ask you to think again about the lyrics of the song from O Little Town of Bethlehem. But there are three places that are mentioned in this hymn, and I'm going to go through them somewhat quickly. Bethlehem, heaven, and our hearts. Bethlehem, heaven, and our hearts. Now, I mentioned to you that, um, that the song was written by a man named Phillips, Phillips Brooks, right? He was born in January of uh, 18, I'm sorry, 1835, and then he died in 1893. He was born December 13th, 1835, in Boston, sadly, and uh, died and died in um, 1893, so he was only 58 years old. Never married, he was single. He was the rector of Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia, and then Holy Trinity Church in Boston, and later became the bishop of Massachusetts. It's said that he used to love children, so he didn't have children of his own, and would often keep a toy box in his study so when parishioners came with their children, the children would have fun and entertain themselves. And he wanted to write a song that the children would remember and that they could easily remember the melody to and and to sing. And so he wrote this hymn, but this is the story behind the hymn. Uh, The Civil War had ended and it had taken a lot out of him. And so he went on a sabbatical. You know what he did? He went to the Middle East. And he took a trip to Jerusalem. And on Christmas Eve of 1865, he hired someone to take him on a horse, maybe a little carriage, to Bethlehem. And he goes all the way into Bethlehem, and he says, I want to walk. And he starts walking through the streets of Bethlehem. And he starts seeing the the fields nearby and starts imagining all of this and taking it in. And it says, uh, one writer says, all the stories of Christmas and the Advent from the Bible started rushing back to him about that night when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so look at these words. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Uh, Bethlehem was hustling and bustling. 
at the time of the census, right? There's people everywhere. There's no room in the inn. Um, above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. What's he talking about? Well, I, I think he's remembering that night in Bethlehem and thinking back to the significance of this place. And there's two aspects in this hymn that jump out at you. And I'm going to just read those very clearly in the first stanza. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. You know what Phillips Brooks recognized? There's darkness all around us. It doesn't just mean nighttime. It means evil. It means darkness. Our lives and our neighborhoods and our societies and our countries are filled with darkness because of sin and evil. But in that little town, that little nowhere insignificant town, a little light had come that would shine into people's hearts. And that would be the everlasting light. Do you know that Phillips Brooks had the privilege of preaching a sermon in front of Abraham Lincoln's casket as it traveled to its final destination and stopped in Philadelphia. So Lincoln's casket, President Abraham Lincoln's casket is lying in state at Independence Hall. And who was asked to do the sermon? this little rector. And he talked about the evil that's all around us and how there's only one hope in the midst of all the evil and brokenness around us. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. And in the very last line, it says, Oh, come to us, abide with us, Lord Emmanuel. You know, that's the other thing that Phillips Brooks wanted everyone to hear clear and loud. Jesus Christ, that little boy, baby born in that stall, cattle stall in Bethlehem, who knows exactly what it looked like. He was laid in a manger, but He was Lord. And He is Emmanuel, which means only one thing. He's the King of kings who will never leave us again. He is always with us. He is God with us. He is forever with us. No matter how dark everything is in your life right now, there is a God who is the King of kings and He is with us forever. Can you remember those two things? That in that little town came the light that later we hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And that light would be the one that is Emmanuel, God with us. Well, let me go very quickly as I wrap up to mention a few things about Bethlehem. What do you know about Bethlehem? I told you a little town five to seven southwest of Jerusalem Here's a few things in my own memory as I kind of recollected this week. Ruth and Boaz met in Bethlehem. They were, she was gleaning in the grain fields and it's 
the breadbasket of Judea. Did you know that? Beit means house. Lachem means bread. Bethlehem is literally the house of bread. And it is also the place where a little boy was a shepherd named David. And God calls him through the prophet Samuel to come and be the king of his people Israel. And later, a greater king would come who is the greater shepherd who will take care of us. That is Jesus himself. And what does Jesus say in the Gospels? He says, I am the bread of life from the house of bread. It's very fertile ground, this bread basin. It's also the place where Jacob buried Rachel. Did you know that? Um, And this is what David himself says in 1 Samuel 18. He says, but David said to Saul, Saul, King Saul says, I want you to marry my daughter Michal. And David says, who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? But God had a purpose for David. And God has a purpose for you, friends. In the midst of whatever darkness is going on in your life, and all the evil around us, God has a purpose. You know, I often think, what can God do through through a very insignificant person like myself? Or, God, you know my family and all the mistakes we've made as a family. Why would you use us? Do you know, friends, God has a purpose for every single one of you according to the riches of His Son, the Lord Jesus. And no matter how insignificant you think you are in the midst of all the challenges and difficulties that you have, God has ordained and purposed to use you to be God's man and God's woman to share the good news of the gospel to those around you. The second place is heaven. And I'll just share it this way. Brooks talks about angels in this little hymn. Do you realize that he's realizing as he's walking through that town, he's seeing the the fields and he's thinking, oh, the shepherds are the ones who are in astonishment, right? But in reality, he turns the, the lines around and he says, can you imagine how in all the angels are, the angels from heaven, the angels are looking down and and seeing all of this unfold and the angels themselves are wondering, how can this be that God would become a baby? You know, in the epistles of Peter, it says even angels long to look into these things. Even they didn't know what was going to happen and to see the gospel unfolding. But that's what happened here. And then finally, I want to mention our hearts. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Do you realize that the place where the king of kings Uh, most desires to reside is in your heart. 
I want you to hear that line again. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Um, I want to show you a picture. Can you, um, whoever's at at the screen, yeah, can you put that picture? Can you guys see this? Maybe it's a little, it's a little small, but it's the nativity scene outside of a church in Bethlehem right now. It's got some statues of shepherds and the baby Jesus with rubble all around it. That is a church in Bethlehem right now. I came across it this past week. It's kind of sad, isn't it? That the place of the birth of our king lies in ruins, almost jailed, But that's just a place on earth. The place where he desires to reside more than anything else is in your heart. I'm going to close by asking this question because I think it's probably the most important question that we as a church need to hear and ask. Friends, I know you've come to church a lot. I know you attend services. I know you sing the songs. I know you know the routines. But is Jesus Christ really living in your heart? Is He really the King of all your life? Are you playing? Are you playing Christianity? You see, when Jesus comes into our heart, everything changes. Our priorities change. Our thinking changes. And even our outlook on life changes because no matter how dark the streets are around us in our lives, there is a light that is shining that will be the everlasting light. And that's what the world needs to see. You know why I'm asking this? Because as I look around at people during Advent season, sometimes I see emptiness. Seriously. Emptiness in their eyes that probably go way deep into their souls. Sadness. Emptiness. Just going one day to the next. Staying busy but they don't have Jesus in their hearts. Maybe you're working for your careers. Or maybe you're putting on saving so much for your children only for them to eat it all away and not have life because they've walked away from the Lord or they don't love the Lord at all. This is what we need to be thinking about and praying about this Advent season. Your life will change once you let Him in. He casts out our sin if we let Him. He actually says, Brooke says, where meek souls will let Him in. If we're humble enough to let Jesus in, He comes into our life, He cleans up all the mess, and He gives you a new outlook and a new life.
That's what Jesus does for us. If that has never been true for you, I ask you even this year before this year ends, get that done. Give your life to him fully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to hear these words and these uh, lyrics of this song and this passage. Lord, would you fill us with the only thing that matters, and that is your Son. Lord, give us hope and peace and joy, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.